Uh, okay, everyone, welcome back. Uh, just so you know, if you're tuning into this um, this episode, um, this is the second part of a two-part episode. Um, it's actually one episode that I just had to cut in half because the file was so long. So if you're tuning into this one, make sure that you tune into the, the, the first part um, on, on our uh, review of Horns, Joe Hill's novel. So make sure that you go back and you check out uh, the review of Horns, part one. And if you have already checked out the review of Horns, part one, keep on listening. Section 4, The Fixer. Now this section resumes Lee's story, focusing on the time when Lee's mother died, or more eloquently put, was slowly murdered by her son. Now it doesn't provide much that we don't already know. I mean, we know he's sick in the head, we know that he wants Marin, and we know that he doesn't live in the same reality that everyone else does, and and he's dangerous. We learn how he got his hands on the cross, and we're reminded of the power in that cross. Hill hints again at Lee's having been able to touch the moon, and even um, with all that we know of his insanity, this puts him in a whole different category of psycho. Now, during this section, we experience his friendship with Marin through his perspective, and we see how her innocent comments are distorted through Lee's psychosis. Now, with that said, um, I I think that Hill lays it on just a little thick at times, from Ig telling Lee, go to Marin now, you cannot resist her summons. And there's the text that uh, Lee receives from Marin after she's trying to fix him up with a date, which he assumes is just a code for herself. Ah, Lee, you were the best damn man for coming to see me, but you should have told me you were on your way. No ice queen tonight. She's working. Guess you'll have to settle for me. And the word coming, of course, is not spelled the way that it's grammatically. <laughs> that's gr- grammatically accurate. Uh... Now, during a conversation with Lee about Ig's lack of sexual partners, Marin talks about their future children, and from the description, how she drifts off thinking about them as if they're real, we realize that what she will say later at the bar just before her death is a lie. Now, with this, Hill creates a tiny mystery. She lied, we realize. But why exactly did she lie? Eagle Eye readers will begin to understand when Lee realizes that Marin looks a little ill exactly why she lied. And also in this section, we get a flashback to Lee's youth that I simply believe is built around the imagery of the fall moon, the tomcat, and the fence post. It could be removed, and it won't change the rest of the text at all. It tells us that Lee had sustained an injury by pitchfork in which his brain was punctured by a tine and thereby explains his awfulness, either that his mental state was changed at that moment by the brain injury or at that moment resulted with his death and he was replaced by something else. The scene involves a death experience dissimilar to Ig's own, but similar enough in the fact that it is the second death experience we see, so I assume it's purposeful. It suggests supernatural involvement, but isn't clear what it means. Typically, I prefer subtlety to explicit explanation, but I really don't need Lee um, to have been touched by a supernatural experience for the story to work. In fact, I don't need any explanation for Ig's transformation. I'm glad that Hill doesn't have Ig discover that he's the last in line of a family of fallen angels, or that his transformation comes at the hands of reading a passage aloud from the Necronomicon, or a curse placed upon him from Marin's parents. All we need to know is that he now looks like how the town sees him, and it's the journey of the transformation that counts, not the explanation for it. I feel the same way with Lee. I I don't need an explanation for his awfulness. I just need to know that he's awful. Now we get the full scene, uh, the night of Marin's death, and the moments leading up to it are loaded with tension, 
and when the truth comes out that all of Lee's fantasies had been a disastrous misreading of the situation, it results with a laugh from Marin, and my heart plummeted. You want to scream at her to run, but you know that won't do any good. Thankfully, Hill doesn't spend much time with the scene, but chooses to reveal that at her worst moment, she finds the treehouse again. Once more, an affirmation of his existence of heaven for this story, a place where she had celebrated love, this memory juxtaposed against Lee forcing himself upon her at the symbolic hell of the narrative. Part 5, The Gospel According to Mick and Keith The section tile reminds us that despite the brutality of the last scene, the reading experience should not be a tortuous one, and Hill goes one step further by having Ig wear the only thing he could find, a blue dress, which only happens because of the classic song Devil in a Blue Dress, and while a humorous image reeks of the hand of the writer. It's a moment that just tips into just a little too cute for its own good. He finds Marin's cross in the grass, and when it doesn't burn him, we realize again that despite his devilish appearance, he's still a good man. Hill even explicitly states the golden cross looped about Ig's throat was his own humanity. Despite everything that occurred within him, he never fully embraces the darkness and clings to the memory of Marin like a piece of driftwood at sea. She who represented all good in the word, world, his fullest potential. Tradition states that damnation only comes when the person believed is um, beyond the help of God, when one trades hope for despair, and at no point does Ig trade in his hope. While returning to Marin's house with Marin's father, Ig learns the truth of Marin's cancer, and Mr. Williams poses the thought that despite the Western religion connotations of his appearance, Ig actually might be the good guy of the story, which we've known all along. Hill writes... My father wouldn't let me take the theology course I wanted, but he couldn't stop me from auditing it. I remember the teacher, a black woman, Professor Tandy. She said that Satan turns up a lot in other religions as the good guy. He's usually the guy who tricks the fertility goddess into bed, and after a bit of fiddling around, they bring the world into being. Or the crops. Something. He comes into the story to bamboozle the unworthy, or tempt them into ruination, or at least out of their liquor. Even the Christians can't really decide what to do with him. I mean, think about it. Him and God are supposed to be at war with each other, but if God hates sin and Satan punishes the sinners, aren't they working on the same side of the street? Aren't the judge and the executioner on the same team? The romantics. I think the romantics like Satan. I don't remember why. Maybe because he had a good beard and was into girls and sex and knew how to throw a party. And then while at Marin's house, um, Ig reads, well, he finds um, a letter from Marin written in Morse code, going back to their first interaction with each other when she had flashed him uh, the Morse code message. And uh, this letter captures her personality, explains to him and us everything that we had questioned so far, and completely broke my heart. <clears throat> so I'm going to read some uh, portions of it. It's They're found in the... Uh, um, uh, the, the, the hardcover edition uh, from pages 315 to 317. Um, so basically she's writing to him and saying, admitting that she has cancer and saying that she watched her sister go through cancer and, and how horrible it was and how her sister's um, just personality was distorted through the cancer and how awful she became and pushed her fiancé away. And basically the gist of this is, you know, Marin wants to let it go and um, keep him free from all of this. And so she writes, I'm afraid if I tell you I'm sick, you will give up your future and ask to marry me. And I will be weak and say yes, 
and you'll be shackled to me, watching while they cut pieces off and I shrink and I go bald and put you through hell, and then I die anyway and ruin what was best in you in the process. You want so much to believe that the world is good, Ig, that people are good, and I know when I'm really sick I won't be able to be good. I will be like my sister. I have that in me. I know I, ha I know how to hurt people, and I might not be able to help myself. I want you to remember what was good in me, not what was most awful. The people you love should be allowed to keep their worst to themselves, which is a really interesting comment to make for a guy that's able to draw the worst out of people, um, you know, with his horns. And then she writes, you're so excited to go to England to be up to your neck in the world. Remember that story you told me about the evil Knievel trail in the shopping cart? That's you every day ready to fly bare naked down the steep pitch of your own life and be flung into the human stream, save people drowning in unfairness. And again, this is why I love Joe Hill as a writer. Um, because yeah, that, that, so it's one, two, three, four sentences that speak so much. You know, that to me is, um, it, it describes Marin, you know, how she sees things. It describes Ig. Um, and the life that he, he had lived before the tragedy had occurred, everything that had been taken from him. <clears throat> so that's, that's a powerful, powerful statement, you know. Um, and she goes on to write, You know how I want to die on the evil Knievel trail, roaring down in a cart of my own. I could close my eyes and imagine your arms around me and go right into a tree. She never knew what hit her, that's how. I'd very much like to believe in a gospel of Mick and Keith, where I can't get what I want, which is you, Ig, and our children, and our own ridiculous daydreams. But at least I get what I need, which is a quick, sudden ending, and the knowledge that you got away clean. And you will have some stout and kindly mother-wife to give you children, and you will be wonderful, happy, and energetic father. You will see all of the world, every corner of it, and you will see pain, and you will ease some of it. You will have grandchildren and great-grandchildren. You will teach. You will go for long walks in the woods. On one of these walks, when you are very old, you will find yourself at a tree with a house in its branches. I'll be waiting for you there. I'll be waiting by candlelight in our treehouse of the mind. And then she finishes, I'm not sure I really needed to write so much. Probably could have saved myself a lot of effort and just copied out the first message I ever sent you flashing you with my cross. Us. That says most of it. Here's the rest. I love you, Iggy Parish. I don't know. That to me is just beautiful for, for so many reasons. Um, you know, her blessing to let him go, but it's her own loss, how much she loves him, the tragedy of all of it. It's uh, that letter. Um, to me, that is the the heart of the novel. That's that's what it's all about. That's why I love uh, this book so much. It's just completely heartbreaking and, and sad. Um, and typically, in these reviews, I always try and find you know the one quote, the one piece of text that sums it up. And uh, that's it. Pages three fifteen to three seventeen. So Glenna uh, arrives at the foundry in this section and talks with Ig, um, showing to him someone that truly cares for him. Um, and then Marin's cross takes on a new meaning. It's her blessing for him to move on. 
In the conversation, he releases her to be free and muses on Satan as the first superhero, um, which is really, it's an interesting argument that he makes. And Terry returns to the foundry in a scene that complicates Ig's revenge on Lee, and we learn that love can trump the effects of horns as he refuses to leave even when told to. And then we have our final confrontation with Lee, and Iggy is once again manhandled. I understand how he was whooped the first time around, but here too? Yeah, I mean, he comes out triumphant, impaling Lee on his horns, and then forcing a, a snake down his throat. But he's on the receiving end of yet another brutal beatdown. I want him to be able to dole out his justice with righteous fury, and it would have been nice to see Lee afraid of the appearance that comes from his final transformation. As Ig watches Terry bitten by the Plan B snake left for Lee, should Ig fail to enact his revenge, he finally remembers what occurred the night of, of Marin's anniversary. He discovers the treehouse of the mine, and when trying to enter it, reveals that he had been the one originally banging on the outside, his present looping back into his past. And when he manages to enter, his younger self is gone, in a cruel cosmic joke, and he learns a lesson that sums up the section of the title from the scripture of Keith and Mick, that you can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you just might find you get what you need. It's revealed that the owner of the treehouse of the mine is Satan. And uh, the tree in which it's housed is the tree of good and evil, a revelation that I hadn't remembered, and one that's so clever and obvious I didn't know how I didn't catch it the second time around. And then the novel concludes with Ig managing to save Terry, um, with Ig entering a burning treehouse of the mine, the ruler of hell of sorts, and reuniting with a character described as his flaming bride, whom we would presume is, is Marin. Throughout the novel, we learn that heaven and hell is only what we make of it, and what's implied here is that hell for others might be heaven for some. Regardless, the ending speaks of both damnation and salvation for Ig, and there's a bittersweet quality to its conclusion. It makes sense, even if I can't really explain what it all means, but it feels right. The problem with it is that uh, all the heaven and hell imagery, the ending is pretty predictable, and I rather would have had a different ending. What ending, I don't know, I can't say, but the second time around it left me feeling, despite the fact that it ended in flames, a little cold. But don't get me wrong, I still loved and I still loved the book. Um, so that's the analysis of the book itself, of the section by section, but I'm not done. I, uh, Like I said, Hill plays up the, the devil um, and hell and um, heaven and hell imagery, and I just kind of want to go over that and the references. So the first is, Hill plays up the connotations that come with the horns, some ways more subtler than others. In the first few pages, Ig urinates on the crucifix. Who would do that other than the devil himself? Marin and her sister are named after the main characters in The Exorcist. When Ig visits the hospital the morning he discovers the horns, although Hill never comes right out and says it, through the description he paints a scene that depicts a hell on earth, with screaming, agonized souls trapped in what feels like eternity. This is not accidental. If you just read page 111, um, it tells you everything that you need to know. Uh, and it just makes me never want to go to a doctor's office or a clinic again. Um, because everything that you fear happens on this page. The small waiting room was almost full, and it was too warm, and there was a child screaming. A little girl lay on her back in the center of the room, producing great howling sobs in between gasps for air. Her mother sat in a chair against the wall and was bent over her, whispering furiously, frantically, a steady scream of threats, um, and active nows before it's too late offers. Once she tried to grip her daughter's ankle, and the little girl kicked her hand away with a black buckled shoe. If, it, if this isn't hell, I don't know what is. I mean, hell even describes the clinic as being too warm. Uh, the second example of devil imagery. Um, 
in the clinic, Hill has fun with us while Ig has fun playing with his newfound powers, egging on the worst aspects of humanity while literally stroking his goatee. Three, he drives a gremlin. And four, um, let's talk about the father and son relationship. This is, this is a big one. I'm going to explore the metatextual aspects of this relationship in a little bit. But for now, I want to explore the illusions presented in the text itself. So, um, you know, think about the fact that we, we only see Derek Parrish in one scene in the present, right? Um, the, the, Ig, before we meet him, we, we know that he's the, the, um, the son of a famous horn player, right? And so this, Ig's worship his father, even if it's not outwardly stated, it, it makes Derek a godly figure, not unlike what the Heavenly Father was to Jesus the Son, a figurehead that defines him, but is at the same time very absent from the Son's life. That certainly fits here, in keeping with Ig as Jesus, both are crucified. Jesus is literal, and Ig is emotional. Jesus crucified and condemned by the Romans, Ig condemned by the town, and is forced to carry the cross of his girlfriend's murder on his shoulders. Now, based on the description of the Father, Hill doesn't give exactly a clear-cut allusion to the Holy Trinity. It isn't that simple. Just think about what we learn of the father on pages 28 to 29. His associates were Sinatra and Dean Martin, celebrities who were celebrated for their indulgences and vices, adored by organized crime. Ig's mother is a Vegas showgirl, and what is Vegas but America's bed of sin, a modern-day Sodom? Yes. Hill presents Ig's father as a presence meant to invoke God, but not just God. With the four sentences that introduce his character, the connotations are loaded with sin, and it's clear that he is presenting the father as the devil, um, if Ig is a metaphoric antichrist. After all, his father is a master of the horn, and despite Ig's budding horns, his father is the one famous for horns. And so what is Terry other than a symbolic extension of the qualities that Ig does not possess himself? He's the golden child. And what biblical golden child is appropriate for a novel whose main character sprouts horns? Terry invokes the attributes most associated with the angel Lucifer before he was cast out of heaven, while Ig represents the character who had been cast out, complete with a set of horns. And this creates an unholy trinity of the father, the son, and Ig, who happens to be a ghost of his former self. The success of this illusion isn't the trinity, necessarily, but what it means for Ig as a character. The unholy trinity is there, but it doesn't take front and center and doesn't take precedence over the characters themselves, and the relationship exists to give us a look into Ig's life, his insecurities and jealousies. We feel for Ig, knowing that his parents believed he murdered Marin and preferred Marin over their own son. Um, another example of the devil imagery is Ig hangs out with snakes. Um, also, it gets something to eat, not just at a bar, but one called the pit. Furthermore, to continue the devilization of all things holy, Hill makes the pit the site of the quote-unquote last supper between Ig and Marin. Um, the box of matches that Ig has in his possession are called Lucifer matches. Um, as I've stated, the cherry runs throughout the text, invoking the concept of the forbidden fruit. As I said earlier, Ig's father is famous for playing the horn, um, the Williams sisters are named after characters from The Exorcist. Uh, at one point, Ig eats deviled eggs. Um, Terry imagines hearing sympathy for the devil, the nightmare, and died, and, and it goes on. Um, but that's just, um, just that's up to 12. That, that's just uh, 12 examples of the, the, the devil 
devilish descriptions and connotations throughout the text. Now I want to talk a little bit about a couple characters. Um, I've talked a lot about Ig, um, but I want to talk about Marin here. Um, you know, I just mentioned um, Ig's family as, you know, the unholy rounding out uh, the, the unholy trinity. But, I mean, it doesn't mean that they're they're bad people. In, in fact, they're, they're, they're good people. Um, but if you want to say that they're, you know, devilish in the sense that, you know, um, Ig is living in their shadow, juxtaposed with this is Marin, um, who represented Ig's freedom from his family's legacy, a light to shine on in his father's shadow. And if Ig is now the devil on the shoulder of others, Marin was the angel on his even the first time the characters met, she was associated with the cross, and she meets him in the days before Ig dies in the water, the event which caused his loss of innocence. It was, as, it was as if she had been sent to guide him through the eventual dark times, which got their foot in the door during the drowning, which occurs in the same scene he first meets Lee. It's no coincidence that the, that the angel and the devil in his life are met within days of each other. Now, Hill does a phenomenal job at creating this character from the first time we see her she's wily she's smart she's witty noble with dreams of becoming a doctor and then the story of her sister's sickness is a mirror to Ig's post-Marin life Marin recounts when the sickness took over it forced the most horrible thoughts to be directed at her loved ones but like how the horns force the same from everyone around Ig the small revelation actually foreshadows a bit of hope for Ig because if Marin was able to move past this live a life, fall in love, and become her own person, and theoretically so can Ig. Balancing the suggestion of a destined relationship with the realization of Marin as an actual character is tricky, but Hill manages to pull it off. If forces at work did indeed send Marin to Ig, then they didn't just send the cipher that Lee imagines all women to be. Instead, Marin is her own character, and while her life and death may characterize Ignatius Parrish, she is not defined by her relationship with Ig. Now I want to talk a little bit about Lee. <laughs> it's almost comical how much Ig likes Lee from the get-go, when everything about him seems so horrible to us. As children, he all but admits to using Glenna, and literally tells Ig that he'd prefer to club her. He, between the conversation of Glenna, how he feels about pretty girls, and his thoughts on porn, it's clear to the reader that when it comes to sexuality, Lee clearly does not see females as people. To him, they're objects. And Marin is objectified with the cross that he takes from Ig. It's a means to an end. Fix the cross, get the girl. More so, there's an implication that once he gets the cross, he's already gotten the girl. Because the girl is as much an object of the cross itself. Out of context, his comments are disturbing. Again, I don't know how, Lee, how Ig doesn't see through him. He discusses how he'd like to shoot people while listening to ACDC. And himself while listening to the Beatles. Now, from the start, Ig has flashes that he purposely tries to ignore. When Lee first reaches for Marin's cross, he wants to shut the trumpet case. Later, when Lee is wearing it, Hill writes, The cross was flashing in the sunlight, and when Ig closed his eyes, he could still see it, a series of glowing images signaling a dreadful warning. Still, Ig doesn't bat an eye when Lee says creepy things like how he performed a miracle that fixed the moon, and the following line, You keep trying to figure out what kind of music I like. I'll tell you what I like. The sound of things blowing up and tinkling glass. Music to my ears. Again, how Ig doesn't see him for the sociopath he is is astounding. He continues. Glenna explains to young Ig that Lee isn't poor and shows um, and, and how his parents aren't divorced. So far, all Ig knows of this kid are the following. He wants to hit Glenna to shut her up. He wants to blow things up. 
He doesn't like music, but wants to find the right music to murder people. He explicitly tells Ig that he had nothing to do with fishing Ig out of the river. Wants to get into Congress to control a woman's right to pregnancy. And he is a liar about everything he's already told Ig. And yet, Ig still remains friends with him. It'd be one thing if Lee said creepy things every now and then, Hill's way of hinting that beneath the good-seeming person is actually a monster. But all we get is creepy all the time. Jesus, maybe it's Ig's fault that Marin died after all. It is humorous how Ig didn't see it, though. It borders on satire. The main character is so dense and straight while surrounded by such an exaggerated villain. It reminds me of um, Frank Drebin from The Naked Gun. With that said, there's something about the cross and how it's more than just an, uh, an objective for the characters and more than a symbol for the writer. Whether it's stylistic prose to illustrate Lee's tainted humanity or Ig's destiny to be with Marin, Hill makes a point to imbue the cross with the essence of consciousness, personifying it as it tries to leave, leave Lee's neck and flashes Morse code to Ig. Lee's mere presence in the book taints Marin and Ig's relationship. His involvement with taking the cross sullied a very innocent, meet-cute story, and even in the scene when Ig and Marin meet again, Lee's presence looms over our characters, partially because we know how he ultimately murders Marin, but also because the previous scene concluded with his misogynistic bragging of Glenna, who was clearly being used. The acts the two of them perform are natural, but not the manner in which Lee treats her. It's clearly one-sided, and clearly uh, Glenna has self-confidence issues. The decision to end the chapter and begin the next one when Marin and Ig meet, it again casts a pall over their reunion. Lee is later revealed to be a thief as much as a liar, running a scam by stolen by selling stolen magazines. His sociopathic and antisocial tendencies reveal themselves in a scene that complicates what should be a relief that he's been caught and found out. Instead, this reveal is paired with the fact that he's been severely injured by the cherry bomb, which causes glass to enter his eye. Now, it's literary tradition for the villain of a story to be physically disfigured, and Lee is no exception. With the explosion, he's partially blinded and weeps blood, the physical transformation of the monster inside. As the novel progresses, with the knowledge revealed that he is the murderer, he becomes a full-blown villain who is so thoroughly evil, we can't wait until Ig gets his revenge. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about father and son, because it makes sense after all. Um... Because the, you know this is the Stephen King cast, and I'm not talking about Stephen King too much. I'm, I'm talking about Joe Hill, his son. So let's talk about the relationship between father and son here in terms of author um, similarities and differences. I'd say that where King specializes in character, Hill specializes in tone. This does not mean that each aren't masters of both, but when comparing the two, I'd give Hill the edge in creating the tone. King does a phenomenal job at creating a specific tone, but he's only able to do it one tone at a time. When he wants you to jump, he manages to do it. Then he'll make you laugh. But his trick is guiding you through the abstract concept of tone, through the perspective of his characters. You are scared because they are scared. You laugh because they laugh. When it comes to this technique, Hill is more nuanced. Rather than doling out one at a time, he can blend multiple tones at once, creating a richer reading experience. Just look at the opening to Horns. In it, you have tragedy, humor, horror, guilt, love, loss, and resentment. That's quite a lot, but it's perfectly blended together. Hill weaves Ig's perspective and thoughts seamlessly into the tone, as evidenced on page 28. You know, I, I, it's a small observation, but I think it speaks to the sarcastic voice that oftentimes rears its head throughout the novel. He writes, It was a well-known fact in town that Ig had raped and murdered Marin Williams and got away with it because his rich and connected parents had pulled strings, called in favors, and twisted arms to interfere with the investigation. 
Unlike his father, he doesn't section off the character's thoughts by placing them on italics. Instead, the character's thoughts weave in and out of the author's narrative, creating a rich tapestry where the character's traits contribute to the tone itself. Again, like I said, Hill writes, it was a well-known fact in town that Ig raped and murdered Marin Williams, and not everyone in town thought or was convinced that Ig had raped and murdered Marin Williams, or Ig was frustrated that everyone in town thought, or italicized sentence separating his thoughts. Instead, we are given a sentence that could be misread as a fact provided by the author, but is actually the very bitter thoughts of the character. Upon reading, um, I think it's very clear and I uh, that it is Ig's thoughts, and I doubt anyone would make that mistake, but I needed to, to point out this example of how well Hill's able to flesh out his characters while simultaneously shaping his novel's tone, where I believe that his father tends to keep those two components separate. While on the subject of father and son, the idea of Ig living in his father's shadow is a major element to Ig's character, and it isn't hard to imagine that Hill channeled a lot of his own feelings from his own experience at trying to make a name for himself in his father's genre um, and put all of that into Ig's plight, a decision which gives the relationship an authentic emotional core. Just look at the fact that Ig at the moment um, is characterized by his budding horns while his father is famous for his ability to play the instrument with the same name. And now we've come to the section called King-isms. Um, if this is your first time listening, um, what I tend to do is I, I, I tend to point out the patterns that I see in um, a particular King novel that I've seen across multiple King stories. Um, and just because it's a Joe Hill novel doesn't mean that we're free from King-isms because there's quite a few in here. Um, so number one, number one, uh, <laughs> and it's, it's one that I wish that I didn't see. Ah, like father, like son. It's found on page 14. Um, it takes place in the clinic. Um, as you know, I, you know, I, mean, I think that, that King tends to, when he really wants us to point out that someone isn't good, he makes that person a racist. And um, we see it again here with, with Joe Hill. Uh, Kingism number two. Um, Ig uh, receives knowledge through a touch, like Johnny Smith from Stephen King's The Dead Zone. Ig is able to receive uh, secret information from other characters through a touch. While he isn't given the future, he does see into their secret thoughts and dark pasts, a superpower for an emerging devil. Number three, the devil pitting characters against each other. Ig's manipulation in the clinic, setting the, char uh, the receptionist and mother um, of the screaming child against each other, and as he does throughout the, the novel with other characters, is something that Leland Gaunt from Needful Things would be extremely proud of. Number four, newspaper boats. Newspaper boats. George Denbro would have told Ig and Marin that once you put some paraffin on those suckers, they'll float. They'll all float. Number five, connections to previous works. As you know, King loves to reference his previous stories, and Joe Hill apparently loves referencing his father's previous stories, in this case, the movie Carrie. This was brought up in a flashback at the beach when the turkey exploded and Ig said everyone there would later claim the girls on Coffin Rock were splattered with the remains of the turkey like the girl in Carrie. And on a side note, is Coffin Rock in the river a shout out to Coffin Rock from the Blair Witch Project? Um, but he doesn't just give a shout out to his dad. He references his own work, specifically Heart-Shaped Box, whose main character is a rock star named Judas Coyne, uh, who happens to be playing in the background on one of the scenes of this novel. Number six, um, I, he's better at this, but he, he kind of falls into this, this, this trait that, that Stephen King does. Um, and like I said, I, I think in the text, um, 
Horns happens to be funny. Just like he's a really good writer at, at humor. Um, but he does include the following kingism. People laughing at relatively unfunny jokes. This case is happens at the foundry. Um, and when Ig is at the top of the hill, ready to ride down naked, is met with one of the boys screaming, Yeah, baby, lap dance. This results with the boys doubled over, gasping for breath, because they're laughing so hard. Number seven, Kids in Woods. The flashback in the foundry could have easily been found in a Stephen King novel. Number eight, The Moon. Uh, the moon is an object that King likes to use as a visual, as seen in It, The Regulators, Cycle of the Werewolf, um, I believe Wizard in Glass, and of course The Stand, because after all, M-O-O-N smells moon. Number nine, uh, bullies. Bullies are a prevalent fixture in Stephen King's works, from Carrie to Sometimes They Come Back, to most notably Henry from It. The scene where Ig confronts the bullies at the foundry seemed almost as if he was saving Ben from having initials carved into his stomach. Number 10, the psychopath rising through the political ranks with dreams of power. Lee working as an aide with a larger ambition is in some ways reminiscent of Greg Stilson from The Dead Zone. Funnily enough, um, that Greg Stilson character is on a collision course with the character I've already identified with Johnny Smith. And number 11 of our Stephen King-isms is everything ends in fire. Because as we know, Stephen King loves to end his stories with something burning or blowing up. So, that was my um, very long, at this point, uh, um, book review for Horns. Make sure you check out the movie adaptation premiering this Halloween. I don't know if it's going to be any good. Um, early reviews are mixed and, and not entirely positive. When I heard it was being made, I had concerns. Uh, the strength of the novel is um, its blend of tones, and the concept is so surreal it works wonders on the page, but I have difficulty seeing it work on the big screen. But still, still, I'm, I'm curious about it. Um, Alexandra Aha's Piranha 3D was a diabolical good time. I loved it. I had a really good time watching it. And it's just fun and it's gross. And, you know, I, I, when I heard he was directing, I thought that it was a good choice because he's a guy that can balance multiple tones. And while Daniel Radcliffe isn't my first choice to play Ig, I, I like how he went after the role um, and how Aha played with our pre existing notions of Harry Potter. You know, because for instance, if you look at any of the stills online, the colors that Ig is wearing, um, those are Gryffindor colors. Um, and so it adds this nice little um, meta flavor uh, to the corruption of Ig because it's not just the corruption of Ig, it's the corruption of Harry Potter. So, And of course you see him with the snake and Harry Potter has all these connotations with snakes. So it, it's, it, it, it's really good casting. Like I said, it's not who I would cast, but it works. It, it definitely works. Um, now, with that said, I mean, the trailer um, you know, kind of makes me groan. There's that line that it opens up with where Ig and Marin are, are lying down, and he says, I'm going to love you for the rest of my life. And she says, love me for the rest of mine. And it's, it's too... It's, oh, God. Um, it's just like too on the nose. Um, and so that, that worries me. But I'm, uh, I'm still going to see it. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to throw up a review of it uh, because just so you know, when I review um, any of the movies, I, I review it with, um, you know, I have it on screen um, on my television and I take notes with my laptop um, and I, I just take running notes um, and that allows me to, you know, keep my, my ideas focused and if I was um, going to review the movie, it would just kind of be a mess. Um, so, 
I won't be reviewing the movie. I'll definitely touch upon it in, in upcoming uh, podcast episodes, but as of right now, I won't be uh, reviewing the movie. I might do it when it comes out on DVD, though, um, so keep your eyes and ears open for that. Uh, but you know what? You know, whether the movie's good or bad, I'm just glad that Joe Hill's name is getting out there um, because, as I've said, I think that's pretty apparent throughout this review. We're, we're approaching you know one hour and, and 40 minutes at this point. I think that this guy is a solid, solid writer. Um, of all his books, I thought that Heart Shaped Box would be the one to made first. Um, and I would still love to see some sort of adaptation of, of Lock and Key. But, you know, whether his, his success comes here with, with Horns um, or somewhere down the line, I, I'm, I'm hoping that this particular movie does provide him some measure of success that's able to lead to greater success um, so that he is able to continue his journey as his own man um, because still even when he is um, talked about in in reviews even in this review um, he's always referred to as Stephen King's son which is not um, it's not fair for a guy that is that talented you know he definitely is his own man and I mean I think that no matter what he does that's always going to be there um, that he's the son of Stephen King but we all know that he's he's not Joe Hill and he's not the published author because he's the son of Stephen King. You know, he is he is who he is because he is a, a fantastic talent who is just able to to craft a, a, a remarkable tone, create very rich characters, keep you on the edge of your seats. Um tell you, I almost started crying when I was reading that uh, that Marin letter to um to uh to Ig. I mean and that was something that I've I've read um, you know, twice now, and I was ready for it, and I, I was choking up. So he is talented. He's really, really good. So um, like I said, even though I'm not going to be reviewing the, the movie, and despite what early reviews might say about the movie, go on. Go out there and, and check it out um, because at the very least, I'm sure that it will, even if it's it, even if it's not good, I'm sure it will have fun moments. And maybe it will be really, really good. Um, but uh, make sure you, you all go out um, – to see it and, and, and support the person to whom The Shining was dedicated. So that's all I got for this week, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for, for sticking through this um, lengthy, lengthy review. Um, everyone have a great week. Uh, make sure you uh, come back next week. Um, and please, as always, write in. Write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com if you've read anything by... Uh, uh, Joe Hill, if when this comes out, you, you see the movie and you want to share your thoughts on the movie, if you want to compare and contrast the movie and give me your review, I will read it on air. Any thoughts that you have on the relationship between father and son, anything that I've mentioned in this review, how you feel uh, Joe Hill compares to his father, these are all things that I really want to hear from you because I haven't heard too many um, comparisons uh, between the two and I would very much like people to, to share their thoughts if there's anything that maybe I missed or anything that, that people disagree with. Um, you know, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the Treehouse of the Mind and what it represents, what this entire novel represents, what it what he's really trying to speak about here, because like I said, it's not about a guy with horns on his head. It's about something deeper than that. Um, and just anything, just please, if you have any thoughts on anything, write into to stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. You can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, 
um, Facebook, Tumblr, all under the, the, the name Stephen Kingcast. And, and don't forget, uh, if you have a chance, feel free to, to write an iTunes review on iTunes for Stephen Kingcast, uh, because the more that we can get, um, more reviews we get, the, the more, um, the, the larger audience that this will reach. So that's my, that's my shout out and my plea to all of you. So, um, everyone, you know, have a great week and I'll see you here again next week. Same King time, same King channel, Stephen King. You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, well, you might find.